0: Listeners and welcome to another episode of Comparing Campaign. I am your host and co-host and co DM, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co DM, McGill. Really, gotta say GM because it's more—it's a more pan system role-playing game podcast than that. This podcast DM
1: GM HM (laughs) MM. This podcast is
0: uh, about, we talk about role-playing games we've run in the past, we tell the tales of times we've run the games, and uh, hopefully based on those tales we can glean insights about how to run games in the future, or maybe uh, what kinds of games, what we'd like to do in the future with our games that we run. And this is an auspicious episode, it's episode 99.
1: Oh man, we're almost there. We're
0: almost at a hundred. We're almost. Uh, what's they? They say that you're like good at something when you did it a hundred times.
1: No, uh, this. Well, maybe the saying I've always heard is that uh, to master something you need to do it for ten thousand hours.
0: Oh man, that's way harder. Although maybe yeah. <laughs> we ha- Maybe I have done that. I don't know. Man, that's a lot of hours.
1: It is a lot of hours, but you know, the, there are definitely things that I've done for for 10,000 hours.
0: I mean, uh, pretty sure
1: I've been a video editor for over 10,000 hours now.
0: Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I.
1: Painting models, I bet you've painted models for over 10,000 hours.
0: I doubt it because I've only got like 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 I've got hundreds of hours logged in like fallout 4 and steam which is a game that i've got some pretty major complaints about (laughs) but point being like i've got hundreds of hours in these games and i don't think i've spent as much time building and painting models as i've played like as i have spent playing one of those games Maybe that's just, maybe, maybe my perception's off. Maybe I...
1: Well, you know, I'm di- look here, I, I, I did the math, and 10,000 hours is 416 and a half days. So that's like, it's like just over a year, really. Uh, but obviously not taking into account sleep. So you got to figure that if you did something like like as a job, like eight hours a day for what? Maybe three years you get your 10,000 hours
0: about that. uh, I worked at KFC. Um, I uh,
1: well, there you go. you mastered KFC.
0: I, I back when back when it was whatever it was back then it's probably changed a whole bunch. If you go in there now it's like a whole different place. The very same location. They changed it up and renovated it. Um, I've uh, I've spent I feel like I've spent that amount of time screenwriting, but that doesn't mean that I mastered screenwriting. That's a tough one because it's like you can invest all the time but you but don't I know But I guarantee that
1: you are better at screenwriting. Than, than most people. Here, here's a guy who broke it down. He says that uh, if you spend 10 years practicing something for four hours a day, you get your full 10,000 hours. And uh, I mean, that's a lot, but I can now safely say like, yeah, I've been a video editor since uh, 2010. And I mean, I edited my own videos unprofessionally before that even. So there, I've definitely got my 10,000 hours in that.
0: Man, this is like putting things into some sort of weird, depressing perspective for me, because, like, I don't know. I just recently uh, read uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankl. You ever, you familiar with that one? No. It's uh, it's by a guy who got out of the concentration camps and uh, developed this whole... Uh, therapy, school of therapy, uh, log of therapy, but it's a, you know, it's like, it's, it's half about his therapeutic theories, and the first half is about his experiences and observations based on his experience in the concentration camps, and obviously, it's a, it's a heavy read, Um, but, you know, it's a, it's a thinker, you know, I, I don't know, it's uh, just like, thinking about man's search for meaning and thinking about doing things for, like, four hours a day for ten years. Man, I don't want to do any of that stuff.
1: To but, Tom, I bet I know something that you've got your 10,000 hours in.
0: Running role-playing games?
1: Hell yeah, you must. Yeah, it's you've been doing this a long kind of time.
0: Certainly, in one certainly, in one sense or another. I've even done, because yeah. I've done role-playing games in ways that other people... Haven't like I've got published adventures and whatnot
1: exactly. Oh man, and you know, thinking on it, considering I started playing RPGs when I was in grade six, and then I started DMing them probably about 20 years ago now, I guess I probably got my 10,000 hours too. Ten thousand hours with RPGs.
0: You know what? Here, here's a here's a, a resonant thought to try and tie things together. Is that in *Man's Search for a Meaning*, uh, Victor e. Frankel talks about how there's uh, an, an unhealthy obsession uh, in our society, and it seems ever more prevalent uh, where we define a person's value based on their usefulness rather than assigning people the dignity of inherent value and whatnot and from that perspective uh like like he says like if you look at the world that way that is exactly how you end up with the mentality that created like mass euthanasia and concentration camps like that's exactly the kind of like skewed thinking that created the nazi regime but the thing that like bugs me is like i can't help but feel that that obsession with like usefulness is still such a thing that like to to put it in like a clear example is like i may have done all that time doing dungeons and dragons i may even have a published thing but i still feel like that's like it wasn't a, like I, I am made to feel like that was not a good use of my time. You know, even though I got this podcast I've been doing so long, it's like on the one hand, I want to feel like we do 100 episodes of this. That's got to mean something. But at the same time, it's like the world has a way of just like getting down on you, like taking your trying to take your meaning from you. What do you think?
1: Uh, we're Well, we're getting pretty philosophical, but uh, I mean, I agree with what you're saying it's sort of the same as how like when people ask you when you meet someone one of the first questions is like so what do you do for work you know it's like the but it our ability be what do you to do for fun yeah it, it, but it is like uh our ability to I thought that's where
0: you're going with that
1: no I, I i'm just i'm trying to articulate a similar thought to what you were having where it's sort of like your your job your your contribution to capitalism is something that should be a defining factor. And, yeah. you right, you know, what you said, though, you should ask, like, wh- what do you do for fun? What are your hobbies and interests? What do you do for work? Like, I don't know, man. Most of the time, I just work so that I can pay for the stuff I really care about. It's, it's less so about, you know, it'd be great if I had uh, a job that I truly enjoyed all the time and it didn't feel like work. But uh, most of the time, sort of, you know, what do you do for work? Well, what does that matter? What does my work fund? That's the stuff that matters.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's, like, really hits on it is the idea that, like, you know, we talk about, like, you were saying that you've done video edit- editing for 10,000 hours, and in my head, I'm like, I haven't done anything useful like that, but, like... It's like it's like that Useful. whole idea I of mean, like contributing geez, doesn't make me a lot of money. But at the same time <laughs> it's like that whole idea of like contributing to capitalist society it's like that what I was saying about like man I don't even want that. I don't even care. I don't I'm I whatever. I'll be a drain on society. What have you uh
1: No nah, man. I I think I think that uh, maybe you uh, are like me, you know, I it's, it's been really hard for me over the course of my life to turn that skill, video editing, into a lucrative career. And uh, I do have a career, but I wouldn't even call it lucrative. It's tough to make money. Uh, everybody, it, it, you go on YouTube, not to get too far into a rant here, but you go on YouTube to look up how to do something in like a piece of editing software. And there's some freaking 12 year old telling you how to do it how how am I supposed to compete when like literal children could be doing my job and are teaching me how to do it at times? But I think you probably subscribe to some similar values that I do, where uh, especially since the pandemic started, I've just taken a greater interest in Epicurean philosophy. and pop culture, Epicurean just means you like good food. But uh, Epicurus, the philosopher... He was all about, uh, you know, spending your life enjoying being alive and avoiding pain. And that's where, like, people associate eating good or expensive food. Uh, They associate that with being Epicurean. But that's part of it, right? It's like enjoying the things that we can enjoy in life while we're here. Epicurus also said that— That
0: line uh, about avoiding pain is more what resonates with me because I'm just always hiding in case life attacks.
1: Exactly. Avoiding pain and avoiding fear are, are two of those, those pillars of Epicurus teaching. But another thing that he said that I firmly believe is that your friends are like one of the greatest riches that you can have. Having good friends. Oh, thanks, so, Miguel. Um, well, there you go. And like, so, so that's, uh, that's sort of, I guess, what I'm getting at is like, hey, man, it's not about what you do for money. You, you've, you've played RPGs for 10,000 hours. You know what? The, that makes you pretty skilled at writing and planning and puzzles and even, I would, I would argue, mathematics. A lot of math goes into RPGs.
0: I got uh, two things to say. One, we're going to have to put uh, the video where the Baby Cakes video where uh, his granddad talks about when life attacks, being ready for when life attacks. Because I said that a bunch, and that was a reference. Uh, Another thing that I was going to say... Oh, it's a weird reference to Nirvana, the band, the show. And so, like, you won't be able to, like, link this because you'd have to watch the show to get it. But uh, (laughs) before fame and money, friend, ship is the greatest treasure. Um
1: you mentioned baby cakes. I feel like baby cakes is sort of the unofficial mascot of this podcast in a way. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, uh you and I both like Brad Neely, but the the thing that I always think about, especially when we're talking about sort of role playing, we've talked about uh, Role-playing at conventions and stuff. And I always think of that Baby Cakes video, right? Be aggressive. Be aggressive. Be aggressive.
0: Um, so, is episode 99. It is the 4th of March, 2020. That means it's Our
1: the... Our f- 10,000th hour of comparing campaign. I doubt
0: that, but I'll tell you what is. This means that this is actually the first episode of the month which means it's supposed to be our whole wrap-up thing. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I read that book. Um, I've been collecting legendaries in Borderlands 3. But the thing is, the thing is, I got so much to talk about in this one, I, I don't want to take up too much time. And also on that note, I don't know what order we're in at this point, but I think that you should go first this time, just so I know kind of how much time I have to work with.
1: All right, that's fair. Uh, Do you want me to mention anything I've been up to uh, lately? If you want to. February was a pretty short month, so I don't actually have... uh, It is one of the shorter months. Yeah, I don't really have uh, all that much to to talk about as a result, but uh, one thing I'll talk about is this week with uh, our buddy Den, Vince Nitro himself, the composer of our theme song, he and I have been deliberately seeking out and watching uh, what we have labeled mindfuck movies. We are trying to blow our minds with cinema, and, uh, and we've watched a, a number of them now, many of which have succeeded at blowing our minds, but I want to shout out two of them in particular, which we watched at the end of February. The first one is a movie called Big Meat Eater. And it's a Canadian film from 1982 that is about an alien butcher who uh, he, he kills people and then alien the aliens bring those people back to life. It's also a musical and it gets very confused in the second half. So I couldn't really tell you exactly how the, the story goes. I do know that there's a strange meat-based element that is discovered called Bolonium not figures heavily into yeah, at least one musical number that's
0: quality for a good uh, role-playing game
1: seeking out balonium
0: the magical empire of the chicken plate
1: hey that's true we're slowly ve- you know the magical empire of the chicken uh, the chicken plate. it's sort of prime for a flesh scape module
0: I feel like we've said this before. I feel like. Yeah, I feel like we have.
1: Oh, my God. A hundred episodes. You know, I've been repeating myself more and more. Uh, I was editing when I was editing uh, last episode where we did a month roundup. I realized, as you had pointed out, I was just repeating all of my thoughts on Mortal Kombat, going on my usual Mortal Kombat tear once again after we would talked about it on previous episodes. Um, But Reflections of Evil is the other mindfuck movie I want to name drop um it's just it it is quite literally the insane ramblings of a homeless person put to film and not an exaggeration because the writer director and star Damon Packard uh he always wanted to be a filmmaker he made a number of short films and he had no money and so he was living in like tents and cars making his short films And then uh, a relative of his died and left him a big bunch of money, and so he put it into making this movie, Reflections of Evil, and it is just like chaotic, frenetic, almost like channel surfing. Like, and it's about he plays. I was trying to remember where have I heard
0: about this, but it's because you sent me that dangus trailer with all the running.
1: Yes, that's right. I sent you the trailer to a more recent film from this guy, Damon Packard, the writer, director, star. And uh, that trailer was for Fatal Pulse, which is just, it's, again, just totally insane. His movies defy description. Like, I have a hard time telling you what it's about. In Reflections of Evil, he plays a homeless, morbidly obese uh, watch salesman but uh, what happens next all i know is that he winds up at universal studios and uh real aliens attack him when he goes on the et movie ride is he
0: wearing a fat suit the whole time
1: (laughs) yeah he is (laughs) and it also features a lot of running around the, the streets of la very similar to the trailer to fatal pulse so anyway, if you want to if you love weird cinema and you want to have your mind blown, uh, check out Big Meat Eater or Reflections of Evil, both just total mind melter movies that I watched with our buddy Vince Nitro in February.
0: Man, it's too bad because like I I think about like there have definitely been moments where, you know, I've seen a lot of things at Fantasia and stuff and I've had a lot of moments or I've definitely had at least one moment where I was, like, had a realization watching something or after watching something, like, yeah, that's the weirdest fucking thing I've ever seen. Like, and that's saying quite a bit. Um, but, I, you know, it's all lost in all the nonsense, you know? I've seen Absolutely. so much insanity. I've seen so much of it. Um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's just jump right into, in into your thing. Let's do it.
1: Into the verse. So, uh, last episode, I, I gave a lot of the setup for this one where the heroes, after escaping from space prison, they had gone back to Ezra. They had, uh, sort of. Like, what's the word? Like deaking, they deeked out a reaver ship. They dodged out of the way to uh, cause it to crash into Niska's Skyplex. So Niska was dead. They that was effectively a while ago, like, wasn't
0: it?
1: Right, but uh, this is all sort of what, uh, each of these things kind of led into the next. So they they led to the death of Niska, sort of liberating Ezra. And so when they went back down to Ezra to meet with. their their buddy Grant Peterson. There was a big celebration going on, and uh, they went to meet Peterson, and he was celebrating, and he introduced them, the party, to his buddy Baron Otello, who would wind up being their employer. And then, you know, in the celebrating, Song and Gail got a little too drunk, and Song challenged a member of another crew to a hover bike race, and that's what they did last time, and then, after the celebrations died down, they met up with Peterson and Otello once again. They converted their ship into their mobile saloon that they the plan they had been discussing over several adventures. And their first job is with Baron Otello, who hired them to act as sort of like uh, delivery people for catering. an event there's a big event happening at an earth that was museum on the planet osiris and otello needed them to go to his vineyard pick up a big shipment of fine wine and then transport it to the the gala museum and like deliver it to the caterers who were going to be serving it and then they can the the party is then invited to stick around and enjoy the gala after they make the delivery so that was the, the big setup.
0: Museum, and what it's I was, a very special haunch episode.
1: It is a very special haunch episode, and something I had laid out for you, but the crew doesn't know this yet, is this isn't just any old wine delivery. This is, of course, part of a smuggling operation, and hidden in the barrels of wine are packets of rare diamonds.
0: Oh, but not all facts, rats.
1: No, not artifacts. And the crew doesn't know this, of course. they—they they, To, to uh, give an air of plausible deniability, Baron Otello has completely omitted the part where they are going to be smuggling black market goods. They think they are just out to deliver some wine. And that's something that I really, I really played up with them. Anytime, as you'll see, of course, things go, go wrong. There are different parties and factions who want these diamonds. But anytime there was any kind of confrontation, I made sure to play up the idea to the players. Well, they want your wine, right? Like, really emphasize the wine part and try to uh, direct attention away from the idea that maybe there's something else inside the wine barrels. Because there is also wine. Um, so, uh, I believe I mentioned this last episode as well, but uh, the Alliance knows all about the smuggling operation. They don't know the finer details of it. They don't know, say, who the buyer is going to be for these diamonds, but they do know that from this little corner of the galaxy, diamonds are being smuggled into the core uh, under the guise of casks of fine wine. And so oh, the Alliance man, they got has got that
0: critical got... detail.
1: <laughs> um, the alliance has got eyes on this whole thing players have no idea about that but also the tongs have found out about it how the tongs found out about it I never bothered to make clear maybe they maybe there's like a mole in the alliance or they're they're paying someone off for information a mole in
0: the vineyard the tongs
1: yeah someone in the vineyard as well um but the tongs also know about the smuggling operation and so the whole setup that I'm sort of t- I was tossing my players into was this idea where they've got something that three different factions want the buyer, the alliance, and the tongs all want what they've got? They don't know what the heroes don't know what they've got, and it's all gonna sort of come to a head at a gala. And, you know, galas and banquets and parties and things like that. I find are always really good places for drama because there's kind of like a, an unspoken agreement that you're not supposed to disrupt the party, especially when the heroes are like working for the person whose party it is. So it's one of those well, things it, It's, like, it's peop-
0: like a security thing. It's like yeah. you want to make sure that even if you do something like if if you're up to something you need to have the party occupied because it's so much more evident if you're up to something and you're in the middle of a party.
1: Exactly. And there are bystanders everywhere and I mean you mentioned security, that's a whole other factor. No weapons allowed at this party, right? So that can lead the to terrible all sorts of that
0: terrible season 2 of uh, True Detective where the lady goes to a party but she's like freaking out on drugs but like everybody's just ignoring it and it's like man does this happen every time (laughs) is this normal (laughs) at these parties
1: Uh, this again just like
0: murder somebody
1: but yeah like no weapons maybe someone's gonna smuggle a weapon in and you know one gun in a room where nobody else has a gun even that is enough to to really kick off a, a whole lot of action and drama so th- that is the flow. That's sort of the the way the adventure's going to go. So the party, they pick up their wine, uh pick up the shipment. They did there was a lot of like sense motive, but they didn't pick up on anything shifty like the players are like i want to you know this guy who's uh in charge of the vineyard here and helping us load up our ship is there anything weird about him they just didn't make their role so nah he seems on the level and he's you know otello has vouched for him and otello is a friend of peterson's peterson has your best interests in mind of course
0: um haunch thinks that like this is his best shot at realizing his dreams and his his hope for the night more than anything is to get a lead on some sort of artifact that isn't hasn't been seized yet like like there's all this stuff behind the museum he's like i want to have something like this one day that i found and like he he wants it's not the thing that he wants to get here it's the trail that everybody else has been finding these things
1: Oh, he wants to get like information on where their dig is or a treasure map or something, yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah,
1: something like that. Man, I mean, if if Haunch had in fact been in the campaign, I would absolutely have given him a treasure map. You know, like uh like the 1999 version of the mummy. It's, They've got that box with the the twisty thing. Some guy at the gala
0: then, who's drink he's drowning in his sorrows because he's he threw away all his investments in this failed operation he's been chasing this thing and haunch is like ah it's the thing i was meant to get
1: (laughs) exactly and all i have is this crummy old you know what's it this weird rod and it has rings that you can twist around it but i don't know it's never gotten done anything for me you might as well take it and then it turns out to be like a code key or something um players head towards the core. Uh, towards the planet Osiris and they are they actually here's here's a question for you Tom because uh, the way I was doing this they're being tailed by an alliance vessel a small one they don't know this how do you handle in your games uh, when you know like an ambush is coming up does the player notice it do you just go with like passive perception
0: um, I, I tend, I prefer to have the active perception if it's something like that.
1: Um, do you, do you roll it then? Because the thing, the sort of the thing I'm getting at in this case, I rolled for Caesar. I just, just like Caesar, let me see your sheet. Okay. I took note of that. I, and then I, I did a roll, um, because you don't want the players to necessarily clue in that something's about to happen. Right.
0: I, I totally get that reasoning, but. I think that part of it is like I have instilled in my games the sense that like perception roles are asked for frequently enough that they don't assume what it could be because they you know there have been enough there's been enough variance there that you know they've been surprised at times it's like oh that wasn't about an ambush that was about someone rushing behind us who was going to give us something that we forgot or something you know
1: so um, so here's the follow up question though is uh so you ask for a perception roll and it's to see if they're about to be ambushed they fail they don't know they're about to be ambushed do you then have a backup answer ready because um, of course the 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 thing that tips your hand that's like something's out there and you don't know about it is when they roll they fail and you just go oh you don't notice anything
0: I always tell them something about the scene but it is sometimes like kind of red herring where it's like something that's like interesting the to class get the...
1: features or no the uh the the location features
0: uh, yeah well like it could be that or it could just be like you know, some some little detail of, like, uh, you know, so we've been doing a lot of battle scenes that could be, like, oh, um, you notice, like, shreds of an armored car, and you realize that, like, the gunnery sergeant must be nearby, but actually I was checking for, like, do you notice the other trail nearby which would give away the ambush? Um, and, like, you know, no matter, like, I, I like to think that my answers always give them something like, like often I will say that I like mention something trivial like this to kind of throw them off. And then they like kind of seize on that as if it's important. Um But luckily <laughs> that just provides good like flavor moments because it's just them interfacing with what I said. Like if it's something about the trail, it's like, Oh, um like, have we seen Morgar in the armored car yet? Or would this be like, have we, not met up with him yet in the battle um and i'm like well roll initiative because actually that's not what's important right now um (laughs) but also uh i tend to like like the sort of maxim that i tend to fall back on with this whole idea of like often doing perception checks is i i I like to say it as like in the with the comparison of like a text-based adventure it's like you always want to do look first thing. The first command you wanna hit in any area is look. Cause you wanna see what the key things are that your character can see. And to me, that's what the perception has that's what the perception check has become. Uh like I can bury stuff in the mechanics of the dice roll, but like more than anything, it's just like If you tell me you're doing the perception roll, I am going to list the things that are pertinent. Otherwise, you know, you might get distracted, might not realize a thing.
1: These days, I actually tend to use passive perception for, you know, very case specific things like did they notice someone hiding in the tree Uh, I'll use passive perception unless they're actively looking around. Unless they're like, I want to look around, and then I'll get them to roll. Um, But in D20 Modern, they don't have passive perception. So I just made the roll for Caesar, and she didn't notice that there was an alliance vessel sneakily coming along behind them on their tail. And so they headed inward Towards the core, towards the planet Osiris, where the gala is being held. And it was at this point that I wanted to present the players with some choices. Namely, I wanted to have them come up against each of these factions who's tailing them. So they know somebody's, you know, they know that the Tongs and the Alliance are after them for some reason. But uh, I also wanted to give them the opportunity to just sort of plan out how they're going to handle that. Do they try to cut a deal with the Alliance or the Tongs? Do they run away from, you know, when the Alliance cruiser shows up? I basically, this is, I don't know if I have a, a you know, how I talk about those, those adventure genres, like a location-based adventure. I don't know if I have a name for this one, but the, the tension here is all about sort of picking a side or picking no sides. And, and finding yourself in the middle of those situations where the, the conflict isn't even necessarily with you. Because at this point, they have different identities. So it's, it, while they are concerned that the Alliance might catch them and realize they are fugitives, uh, it's, it, it's more a case of just like they're being confronted with the Alliance. Do they run? Do they fight? Do they try to talk their way out of it? Or do they even... ...help the Alliance in exchange for their own freedom. So, as they're getting close to Osiris... ...the Alliance springs a trap. The ship that is following them... ...makes itself known and hails them... ...and then up from the planet... ...they are already in in space... Uh, ...come two more Alliance vessels... ...and they're being cornered... ...by these these three ships. The Alliance hails them... ...and immediately the party flies into a panic... They don't know how they're going to get out of this one. And of course, the players are all terrified that the Alliance was on to them because of their fugitive status, which was not the case. And so they didn't answer the Alliance's hailing call and they were debating like, okay, do we try to flee? You know, we might get shot down if we do. Uh, do we try another fake our death scenario where we escape on the shuttle and blow up the ship? Uh, it just like lots of debate, but they were taking too long to make a decision. And I really didn't want, uh, I didn't want them to come face to face with the Alliance right away. And so I decided at this point, the tongs would also make themselves known. So a tong ship that was camping out behind a nearby asteroid that's floating around Osiris, suddenly flies out, fires a few shots sort of above all the Alliance ships, and then tears off in the opposite direction. And the Alliance ships immediately go onto high alert, and two of them fly off after the Tong ship, leaving just the one uh, Alliance ship that had been tailing the Kennel since Ezra. And the players go, okay. I know it doesn't really
0: go with uh, the aesthetic that we've chosen for our new ship, but I think we need a cloaking device.
1: (laughs) Probably wise. Um, But no, they don't have one. And so I ran a little chase where they outrun the alliance vessel and then sort of disappear down among the ship traffic uh, closer to the planet's surface, once again, disappearing off into the crowd. And uh, so with thanks to Caesar's fancy flying, they managed to lose their tail and make like a just a big roundabout route towards the downtown of the the city where the museum was, uh, trying to blend in as best they can. And of course, at this point, they also have no idea that any of that had to do with the delivery they were making. So they're just like, let's just do this delivery and then get out of here as quickly as we can. Uh, but the Alliance knows, the Alliance has a, it has a bead on them, basically. They know sort of where these things are going to end up. Um, so they find the museum and the gala is just getting started they head to the uh, the service entrance and start bringing in the casks of wine, and once again, like they're they are unwittingly surrounded by different people who want what they have. So there are already some tongs at the party. They bring in the wine, they give it to the caterers, and then as soon as they're like, about to head into the main area of the museum, and this is a a two-floor museum that I had a big map for, Uh, they are immediately confronted by three guys in black suits, three tongs, who just lay it out. They're like, well, you know, one of our ships seems to have helped you out of a sticky situation just before you entered the atmosphere, and we know that you are delivering wine on behalf of Baron Otello to this party. So, tell you what, in exchange for our help, why don't you show us where you left the wine? And the players are sort of nervous, they're not really sure what they want to do, and uh, I remember that Minerva was just like, Okay, sure, you can't take all of it though, we'll give you some of the wine for whatever reason you want, but uh, you can't take the full shipment, and we thank you for saving our skins, and she starts leading them back, you know, through the nearest uh, service entrance into the the depths of the, the lower levels of this museum. And the even though she had said that, it seemed like Minerva hadn't really committed to that. Because as soon as they were sort of leading the tongs away, she's saying, like, under her breath, whispering to Dan'l and whispering to Chow, like, guys, I think, like, let's just take them. There are more of us than them. And now we're away from the party. And so they sort of lead them around to a bank of elevators. They're all waiting for the elevator. There's a ding, the doors open, and the players just start... They they pounce on the, the trio of Tong guys, give them a pretty good beating, and then shove them into the elevator and send it down. And then they rush back up to the party. And this is where it becomes a bit like uh, that module that I described on a previous episode a uh, funny thing happened on the way to carousel i can't remember the number but the one where it takes place at an airport Dang and their suitcases that's right there are suitcases that all look identical And the players are tasked with getting the right one. But of course, all the different people who have these identical suitcases get all the suitcases mixed up. And it becomes sort of a comedy of errors, like almost like a a slapstick silent Buster Keaton routine or something. Lots of mix-ups. But this is a a similar sort of situation where they're in a crowded place, there are people everywhere, and the party wants to find Baron Otello. But the tongs are also at the party, and then at a certain point, the alliance also enter the party. And so it was, I, rather than give like the play-by-play-by-play, by play by play, I basically laid out the map of the museum for the players, and they enter the party, and then I just sort of, I played it by ear, I improv it anytime I wanted some drama I was like, okay, so you head up the stairs to look at the exhibit on the second floor. Right at the top of the stairs, there are two alliance guards. Oh, damn, they're probably here working security, right? And so, okay, they, you know, the, back down the stairs they go. But then as they're going down the stairs, uh-oh, it looks like some tongs are coming up the stairs. What are we going to do? And so the players have to decide and think on their feet. And it was just a lot of, like, diplomacy and... um uh, well, now it's deception. I'm trying to remember what it used to be called. I can't remember what bluff. it was in, in D2. Bluff, that's right, a bluff check. Lots of bluff. Um, and like hide, you know, and they, they try to hide in the crowd or duck under a nearby table. Um, and I just sort of, I played it, I improved it, right? I didn't have like a specially timed series of events The way you would with something like Elf in the House, another uh, module I've described on previous episodes. And with Elf in the House, there is like a set schedule for the order of events. Not so here. I was just like, okay, the Tongs are here. The Alliance are here. The players are here. Baron Otello is on the second floor with his buyer. Um, And... Whenever I felt like it, I was like, okay, let's toss a few more tongs into the mix. Let's toss a few more Alliance guards into the mix. You saw Otello over there, but then the crowd closed up, and when it thinned again, he was gone. Where is he, you know, where is he now? And it became, like, uh, just a a fun kind of, like, juggling type adventure. Do you ever run adventures like that where, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing where in my notes there's just a gap where it's meant to be like, and now... We just let it go and see what happens and, and roll the dice as as necessary.
0: I mean man, it's funny because I'm gonna I have run games like that and I'm gonna talk about one tonight, but or today, but like I don't think I've run an MPOC game like that that okay. I can think of. Um yeah, I I feel like the MPOC games I always have some level of like you know future stuff planned out. Um yeah, but it's hard hard to say. Is that what you mean is just like I I guess I like you know that's what you said is is the idea of like simply having a point where it's like and then we'll see what happens.
1: Right? Exactly. Yeah, just just you know all the all the different components are are placed together, and now like a like an experiment you just sort of let them go and see how they interact and you as the d m you know the motives of all of the uh all of the different factions outside of the party and so you just sort of do your best with that and so the uh, i in my notes the things i did it's, it's have a type down. of
0: of game of like it's a way of running your game that is much more in line with the way i approach running a game of vampire the way i've talked about with the idea of the political terrarium where it's like i know where all the characters are i know what they want and what they're doing but i do not know where the players are going to be
1: yeah exactly just like that and i don't really i don't ever do it with I don't know, I, I only do it from time to time with adventures, and uh, it, it actually makes it difficult when I recount those adventures for this show because there are these gaps in my notes where it's just like, roll with the punches, you know, uh, react to what happens, or if things are slowing down, throw something into the mix to speed it up. But I don't have a lot of specifics to refer to in those notes. What I do have in my notes, though, are things like... Um, you know, uh, here's what happens if the players cut a deal with the tongs. Here's what happens if a players cut the deal. If the players cut the, uh, a deal with the alliance. Here's what happens if the players cut no deals whatsoever. And then here's what happens if the players don't even figure out what's really going on. And uh, they thankfully, it wasn't that one. They actually figured out that there were there were diamonds being smuggled in the wine. But they didn't cut a deal with the Tongs or the Alliance. And uh, sort of a fun little punchline to this whole thing, too, is that as soon as the caterers took those casks of wine, the deal was done. They really just had to meet up with Baron Otello to let him know that the wine had been delivered, and then he'd pay them. And that's it. But the way it sort of went, uh, they thought that something at the party was going to be like the the significant moment. And so this whole party is really just them like dodging people I I don't know. There're definitely consequences of course, but it's it's almost like uh the movie Ocean's 12 where the heist actually happened before any of that. The 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 payoff has already occurred. And so what ended up happening in the adventure was They spent the party ducking and dodging the tongs in the alliance. They met with Baron Otello and let him know that the delivery had been made. But then the uh, like a pallet with the casks of wine was wheeled like it for some reason it needed to actually go into sort of the main area where the gala was being held. And so like out of a service entrance comes a guy pushing a hover pallet with all these casks of wine and the tongs jump on that guy and immediately start taking the wine. And the alliance uh, operatives who are there immediately, like, start fighting with the tong. So on the main floor of the museum, a fight does break out, but the players aren't in the middle of it. They just have to react. They sneak away. Uh, they help Baron Otello and, like, some of his other guests get out through a back, a, a back exit and again wind up in sort of the uh the service tunnels around the museum meant for uh for employees and then the ultimate payoff to all of that is they escape they everybody sort of flees into the night and agrees to meet back on ezra they load up the kennel and they fly back to ezra and when they uh, reconvene with baron Otello. He explains the whole thing about like, as soon as you passed off that, those casks to my caterers, they took the diamonds out of it. The deal was done. So the fight that broke out was really was just over casks of wine. And you know, it did another one of those little cutaway things where the few surviving tongs who made it out of the, the crazy shootout, they're flying away and one of them prizes open, one of the casks of wine. And pours it out, and it's all just one. Ain't no, no diamonds. diamonds in there. That's right. So much for your big payout. And uh, and something I should note here is uh, let me actually just confirm this in my notes, but I'm pretty sure that yes, this is where we went on break. Uh, I believe it was like a holiday break, but we took a few months off of the verse. And uh, I'd known this in advance that we were going to do it, and so I treated this one like sort of a season finale. If you've watched Firefly, uh, Firefly's season finale doesn't have anything to do with the main story. It is just sort of a self-contained little caper, and so I was kind of evoking that with with this adventure as well. I just wanted to have like a fun thing where there's some action, there's some suspense, Also, the players really enjoyed looking around the museum. I would give them some downtime uh, during the museum antics where they could like you know, I want to sort of blend into the crowd and look at this exhibit. And then I describe the exhibit and little bits of history that they were learning about. And uh then at the end of this, I just sort of, I played it up like a, like a season finale, and it really did kind of feel like a season finale because they had achieved their long-standing goal of having their mobile saloon, like th- this adventure ended with them like popping open the cargo bay doors and having a little party on Ezra in their new flying saloon. They'd escaped from prison, they did one last deal, and now it was time for a, a big break. Uh, the see the season finale and so when are they getting renewed
0: up, are they getting renewed for another season
1: that's right they got more seasons than the actual uh firefly and uh you'll also note oh, in boy. fact that this is session 12 so it isn't it, it is even like uh the length of a season of tv 12 episodes
0: I don't know. It's, seasons get pretty weird these days. Sometimes you get six, Yeah, it's true. I mean, if eight. it was
1: British TV, it would be three episodes for a season. Man, um
0: The Expanse only got six episodes for its last season. I didn't think it was very good.
1: Yeah, I, I, and then you could also do one of those seasons where it's like you get a half a season, and then a year later you get the other half of a season. Oh, Why is that... All one season? I don't know. What's the difference? I don't know. Who makes these decisions? But uh, yeah, this was a, a season finale for The Verse. And then next episode for episode 100 will be season two of The Verse. What will happen then?
0: Oh, man. In the start of, well, we'll see what I get done. McGill, Operation Hidden Track. I foreshadowed All right, it's it the last track. time. I foreshadowed it last time. We've we've taken Decima, the last defenses have fallen. Catatonia, the kingdom, this is probably the largest chunk of the Deathlands, this uh, kingdom that we've been invading, it's finally officially fallen with the fall of the Death with with the fall of Decima. You get back. Al uh, Al's got big news. They get back to base. They found. Him. They found Odium by using.
1: They found him at long last. We're we're gonna get the answers.
0: And it's not like like they hadn't. It's not like I guess it's not really. It's like we they came to him and it's like we found him. It's more like we think we know where Odium might be. We found they they had secured a planar map um uh earlier on in the act I believe. But that planar map with along with the intel that they had um with the Carvin Spire and Cha Arha what right and, and whatnot, like they have sort of a better framework for sort of extra planar um uh, maneuvering at this point, particularly with like things that are difficult to get to like Citra Arha like these weird uh installations like outside of time and space and so they find this one sort of like mysterious uh area and they're like we think this might be where Odium's gone and so uh Chessie and uh, Nestle and Aura Stormblast Kendor are sent through the portals to, like, like, through the portal room to go to where they think Odium is. Um, before they get there, though, each of them goes on this weird sort of, uh... Or actually, I, I genuinely can't remember if I did this before or after they went through their original destination. But at some point in the extra planar transit jump, um, all of them ended up in an audience with a major sort of planar entity that they were attuned to in some way. So for Chessie... Uh, chessie was was sort of the odd uh, exception because chessie ended up in an audience with zoth the radiant anarchy who i've mentioned before he doesn't come up a lot but it's the idea of a sort of um extra planar patron for the mpoc uh that when when mpoc's finest in the first campaign first went outside of reality and their Uh, faces turned into big mouths and uh, everything got all weird. They had to climb a wall of text. That's when they met Zoth and Zoth sort of explained to them the real stakes of the war with the Nightside Eclipse with the way that they were sort of like disrupting reality and displacing uh, mortal souls and whatnot. And so Chessie in her interplanar travel ends up getting confronted by Zoth And what Zoth... Basically, Zoth offered to sort of bestow another boon on Chessie, but on the condition that she had to sort of... Basically, she had to give up her attunement to Skyfang, the cursed sword that she had attuned to. And the real... that that made her make that decision and i was truly uncertain what choice she was going to make in this um in the end she did decide to unattune from sky fang and the reason was that in her like sort of flightiness that its curse was causing she was thinking less of dax her goblin boyfriend and in realizing that she was beginning to become distracted from and forget her loved ones, she determined that it was the right thing to do to dispose of the uh, cursed sword, even though she liked it so much and it treated her so well. So... Hard
1: decision.
0: That's, that's Chessie. Meanwhile, our Stormblast Kendor ends up in the court of Poseidon himself, his god summons him to stand before him for an audience he introduces him to his son triton um as just like sort of a, a meet and greet like hey uh this is my son you're such a great uh cleric of mine whatever um but then the the real thing for that was that like poseidon was announcing to Arakendor, bestowing upon him demigodhood, basically. The boon that Arakendor got was literally the boon of immortality, not in the sense that he couldn't die, but in the sense that he will never die of old age. He has to be like slain by some means. Um, And so Arakendor basically got that sort of uh, divine ascension, which was like a good turning point for him as a cleric of poseidon and all he had done and uh it's also funny because his journey didn't involve unattuning from the cursed item he still was attuned to the cursed trident it's just uh you know basically just fit fit right in um and then finally nassily uh received an audience with mephisto um and basically uh so Mephisto has been sort of the patron of Nestle's homeworld for a while. Ever since the deal that Miele made back in the in the first campaign to sort of avenge the Elven people uh in her realm through Mephisto. Um he is now like sort of like the reigning power as like the her homeworld has of Thress has become this elven civilization dominated by like hellfire fueled technology and like generally uh mephisto is sort of like the reigning power not explicitly the reigning power is officially the elven council which mia Lee is on but everybody's kind of like in with with mephisto at this point for for what they owe him effectively you know it's the it's the thing of making a deal with a devil. you never just get it free um and to that end uh so Nestle had previously gotten the godseed fragment, this bizarre uh thing that sort of took hold of her mind and she wanted to keep it for herself and in the end, what she deter- what she decided to do with it was send it back to Thress and use it as a sort of um, elemental engine or generator to sort of, uh, basically to help like terraform parts of her world. Like So to to further enhance uh, things in her homeworld of Thress, she sent back the Godseed Fragment so that its power could be used to influence the natural world there. Um, but in this sort of transit jump, Uh, Nessaly receives an audience with Mephisto where Mephisto basically asks to sort of have the power of the Godseed Fragment like turned over to him. And in exchange for that, he will give a sort of infernal blessing upon Nessaly, which gave her fire resistance, uh, sort of like um, certain tiefling abilities, like the ability to cast certain spells and whatnot. Um, It was actually something that I think they introduced later is actual like uh, different types of tiefling that are uh, uh, associated with different demon lords or arch devils. But anyways, basically there was this idea that um, Mephisto would like further become ingrained in the world of Thress. Uh, through this bargain that he made with Nestle, following the bargain that he had made with Miele. So all of them end up going on this sort of extraplanar jump, end up in this sort of transit jump where they briefly um, are in immediate communion with with some higher entity after going through the portal they come to this very small it's almost like a a cave the way i kind of imagined it this place that odium has sort of been hiding out is i i often describe Citra arha as being like a huge like space station or something um and uh, we got into like the death star and all that sort of thing um but with odium i imagine it as being like he's sort of living in like a single room cave in an asteroid he's just chilling (laughs) and that's like i guess maybe the comparison if we're doing star wars comparisons is kind of like uh yoda and dagobah or like where luke fucked off to in in last jedi um
1: or obi-wan kenobi
0: yeah yeah you know it's like they're these just odium's just they, they find Odium just isolated in this cave in the middle of like plainer nowhere. Um, and he has this sort of, they, I mean, they find him and he's just like the Odium that we remember. He's sort of this cloaked, um, kind of like, like he looks like a very advanced, Stage of some terrible medical condition, basically, because he's all wrapped up, he's on a sort of i v there's something that seems to be growing out of him and into the sort of i v um, stand he's got goggles he's got a breather mask and, and like I specifically noted uh in in these notes for this part actually like the smell. That sort of like what odium smelled like. And it's this scent of just like alcohol and like oil and things like that. Um it's a it's a, like it's a very like medical kind of smell. I'm actually uh I'm gonna pull up the notes if I can find it. Uh so he smells like resin, oil, and alcohol. And I got this tiny little map. Of what is his little oh, that room might be, looks like?
1: I, I might smell kind of like that.
0: <laughs> oh man! Uh, so they find he's got a room. So he's got there's the bed where he is, and he's got the plant sort of IV thing next to that, and then near that there's a big sort of machine terminal that has. Uh, I'm not sure if they would identify it immediately, but it has like a scrying orb sort of fixed in front of it, um, and then there's a portal and then there's uh, a magic table we'll get to that later um and they come in and it's like Odium's there but he's just like you know it's it, you know it's it's kind of typical Odium is like he's there almost like he's on his deathbed um but of course these characters have never met Odium before and so they are oh, that's
1: right so wait so this is this is much more significant to the players than the characters.
0: Uh, well, sorry, no, I, I think it is because it's significant for the characters because the characters have never met Odium, right? Like Chessy. Oh, right. Well, Cara no, but what, what Nestle, I mean, right? Sorry.
1: Right, but it, aren't these the same players? Like they, they had encountered Odium in the previous campaign. Two
0: out of three. Uh, okay, two the person of who played Chessy had never met Odium or anything like that. Except that he played Tusk in the two-player game I ran very briefly about the detectives working for the MPOC. And so they would have met Odium that way, I think. Um, but that would have been a long time before. Anyway. So Odium, like, they, they... Find odium and odium sees them, and there's this sort of moment of recognition there's this sort of i f- the way odium sort of felt in this scene was like this was going to happen eventually, regardless, no matter how much I put it off this moment was always coming, and he always had that kind of awareness but the the whole question obviously is where has odium been why has he been gone what the heck i mean what are your questions what are your could you list your questions for odium if you could ask him
1: i mean it would just it would all be about just what happened where had he gone what caused i guess where where where's he been is sort of the first one and then my follow-up would be getting into more specifics what caused him to leave uh has he just been here this whole time tell me the full story of what happened to odium
0: oh man the whole story of odium well (laughs) now we might have to go a ways back
1: gather around children
0: so, it's uh, like it's like 2014 or something. I D- Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition. I don't even think it's come out yet. I haven't played it yet. I haven't played Dungeons and Dragons. No, I've I've been playing in a four e game that a friend of mine ran. That the guy who plays Chessy is in. But this is ages before like. I've got ideas for the MPOC, and I've thrown them into an adventure I've run here and there. But like, this is so long before I my regular game, basically. And long before any of that, as you know, I was into Vampire. And for a while there, I don't know, I was like, I, it was a crazy time in my life. I've been through some bad stuff and I was sort of like in recovery. But part of that was I started up this new game of vampire for my brother and his friends and uh he has his two friends and said just come over every week i'll run this game for you and it'll be vampire and i'll run it uh basically i said i'll do like space vampire space vampires like sci-fi like vampire sci-fi i think honestly i just had them show up and asked them, I, I know at to some degree it was just like, so what kind of game do you guys want? And when they gave me their answers, I remember coming pretty quickly to the determination that um basically it sounds like you guys want to play Space Vampires. And they were like, Hell yeah, let's play Space Vampires. And I was like all right and Space Vampires is honestly like I don't know it it was a it's funny because we were talking about like my whole RPG career in this episode and stuff and it's like I feel like Space Vampires is like a real turning point where it's like the first of the like really good RPGs that I ran like where I really just like cuz like I think things are sort of continued from Space Vampires into my 5e games in a very like in a fairly direct way i would say
1: i i get where you're coming from i would say that minds of meddling wheels was my first like really good rpg campaign it was also the first one that i played end to end not you know we've talked before about how some campaigns just kind of run out of steam and peter out, but uh Minds of Metal and Wheels was the first campaign that I'd ever run that had a definitive conclusion.
0: And and how long did that one run?
1: You mean like in real time? I like guess. Like yeah. over Yeah. Uh I want to say like two years.
0: Like so so a fair number of sessions, eh? Like Yeah. So the thing is Space Vampirates, um, it, I feel like it didn't take that many sessions it was i guess without intending it i feel like it ended up being kind of a mini series certainly compared to the stuff that i run now but like i said it was also like sort of the first game of its kind for me um anyways the the point is is not so much about like so it was a vampire game um it was set in like a sci-fi future it's about these three vampires who have basically um managed to get themselves a ship have taken off from the main uh jovian shipyards the uh, around jupiter and they've like they they've stolen their ship and they're like all right the freaking solar system is ours we're vampires in space we only got to worry about the sun when we're on a planet everything else is just the void and we got a ship and let's go, let's go find our fortunes. So they go to Mars and Mars, uh, basically they land on Mars. And first of all, they discover, um, that recently the vampire community of Mars has been quite shaken up, uh, because of, a a, a killing, a murder, Someone has died, and it's, it's a big deal in, vamp, in the vampire society when one of them dies, especially if most people don't know what the deal was. Um, so they end is, on... is
1: Vampires of Mars a reference to something? I feel like I've heard that before.
0: No, no. I've no? Just, uh, I just decided to set the first part of this Space Vampire It's on Mars. Uh,
1: L- looking it up, there is, there's a, a book. Called vampires of mars and but so that's about it
0: like i had a, a sort of thing where um mars is in a sort of state of like i i feel like if i say colonial development it gives a sense that it's like too far back in in terms of progress this is like there are colonies on Mars and they are beginning to develop further, basically. Do you know what I mean? Like sort of like second stage colonial development, if that makes sense. It's like um you've like got
1: the, like the original colonists landed and set up their colonies. And then then civilizations are branching out from those, you mean?
0: Yeah, people are starting to like, you know, it, it, the real thing is like it's the point at which real estate there starts to become actually valuable, you know? Um, it's, yeah. the, it's the jump between this is going to be really tough for you to live here and, hey, come live here. It'll be great. It's,
1: um, it's, the, it's the Wild West of Mars.
0: And so in this community, like Vampire Society is doing pretty well. They've got sort of their fingers in the development of the planet um, they've got their own society sort of set up and policed. Um, and some of them have enough ties to like own ships and whatnot. But place has been shaken up by this, this murder and uh, the space vampire show up just as this happens to be going on. And so they arrive to see all this going on and they end up sort of getting Basically, just sort of drafted by the local sheriff, the vampire sheriff, um, to sort of assist him with the investigation. I think what it really was was like you have to do something to integrate into this community if you're gonna be here. And so it was like, why don't you go help the sheriff? The sheriff's got a case, go help him out. And so they look into this murder case and Effectively, what it was was someone, uh, a, a vampire, had killed their sire, which is like the vampire that turned you into a vampire. Um, there was there was some like honestly, I'm kind of forgetting some of the details, but it was a sort of intrigue where it's like you know the prince of the city has this uh, has his hands in this development. Um, this one vampire she's trying to get in on it but she's trying to like undercut her sire who like is inherently above her Um, so she ends up taking out the sire but then also because of the sort of interest that he had already gotten involved in other parties were then like invested in his involvement in the development project so they um end up Managing to track down this vampire uh, because it eventually it comes together. It's like well, nobody's been able to find the child of this vampire, and if they're like it, you know, it's like one of those things where it's like the usual suspects when someone gets murdered is like you check their spouse, their, their the people who were close to them is like the first people the police question. And so similarly, there's this idea of like, well, if that person has gone missing right when this happened, that doesn't seem like a coincidence, And eventually they track down where she is, and so there's this moment where the space vampires all show up to um, with the sheriff at the place where they're gonna like apprehend this vampire. I should also say, I, I never gave the names, so I feel I, I my brother's character is the only one that I don't I'm not certain of the name of because we always kind of forget it. But we think it was something like Joffrey von Joffrey von Gottfried or something like that. Um and I believe he was sort of like the communications guy. Well, like, I don't know. It's hard to say. I feel like he was almost in a sort of leader position initially, but I'm not. It's hard to say. They, it, you know, it's a crew of three, and they all had pretty major personalities. Except that I can say that one of the players, one of the characters, was Victor Flexov, who was the security chief, self designated, and he was just like a big tough, badass. You know, he was the heavy. Sounds um, like
1: the name of a Grant Morrison character.
0: And then, I think the other one was Radagast Thran, which is funny <laughs> given our history with the name Radagast. But uh, it's okay
1: thing, if it's a name of a person. <laughs>
0: but he was he was like the ship's medic, basically. He was Doctor Thran, um, and he was a Nosferatu. So he was the creepy like ship's doctor, and then there's That's the awesome. badass Gangrel vampire security chief and then there was a sort of like more um more traditional kind of like uh like like uh what am i looking for sort of like exotic kind of aristocratic kind of vampire, like sort of more what you would expect of a vampire than the other two who are more like sci-fi characters. Whereas this person was more like a vampire pirate, a vampire in space. It's a space vampire. It's right there in the title. Like, you know, he'd, <laughs> he'd wear fine clothes. He'd be kind of like sinister. And, uh, he had special powers and, uh, you know, pirate py- piratic ambitions. Um, so, firstly, okay, I had no idea what was going to happen next. What I knew was that the sheriff was going to try and apprehend this vampire, uh, expecting the space vampires to assist him. It was going to be like a takedown with like a cornered, Desperate vampire, and then, while that was going on, someone was gonna snipe that vampire that desperate vampire uh with like maybe some sort of laser sniper or something i don't I don't remember that kind of detail, but like you know point is snipe the vampire, and it's like, who the heck is that sniper who's who's trying to cover this up what's going on and like I've already told you that it's people who were involved in the development that the sort of patriarchal vampire was was involved in before he got killed but so first thing i did not expect when the sheriff said are we ready to go in to like bust this vampire when he went to like breach the door to go in they murdered him i had no idea this was going to happen, but it happened as if they had totally planned it ahead of time, all three of them.
1: Um, but they hadn't discussed it in advance. They are just like, all right, murder.
0: I think they might have. I th- they used But to unbeknownst all, to you. Yeah, they used to all take smoke <laughs> breaks in the backyard. And I think that during one of those smoke breaks, especially since this was probably like the first session, I think they said, let's let's kill the sheriff. We're space vampires. He wants us to work for him. Let's, let's kill him once, once we got the drop on him. And so they did. And, and so immediately, uh, my whole plan of like them doing this takedown and then the victim getting sniped is like, okay, well that... So that this happens instead first. Then the victim gets sniped and Victor Flexov is like, what the fuck? Uh, or oh, man, uh, I I'm not sure it was Victor Flexov. I don't think it was. Now that I think of it, I think it was actually my my brother's character. But the point is, one of the vampires, one of the three vampires, activates Celerity, which is super speed, and in a move that I had not accounted for, basically used super speed to run down this sniper who i had just assumed would like get away because he was in a position and then could slink away but he slinks away and then this super speed vampire is chasing after him and he's like right behind him i'm like okay um well then you follow that vampire back to he he gets into his ship he gets into his ship and takes off and so i think yeah it was my brother i'm pretty sure Follows them into their ship and like stows away aboard their ship, and they take off and they start flying away. And then it's like, okay, so then, uh, Godfried is on a ship that has taken off from Mars. Um, he gets a signal out to Dr. Thran and Victor Flexov, and they like they rush to their ship. And they go to, like, pursue. Then Godfrey goes to look around the ship. And in the back of the ship, like, like, he doesn't check the front right away, I don't think. But in the back, he, like, checks the cargo, basically. And in the back of the ship, there's a very, uh, like, a very notable thing, which is there's just this big sarcophagus. If you know something about vampire, you know that that's, that's bad mojo, man. That's like, that's like, oh shit. That's the freaking super ancient vampire. That's going to eat all of us. That's the, it's, it's a big part of the vampire uh, bloodlines. Uh, video game is the, the, the dang old um, sarcophagus shows up and everybody wants it. Everybody's worried what's inside it. There's going to be a big monster vampire.
1: Not to mention a key plot point in the classic film Dracula 2000.
0: Oh, uh, man. So, well, and it's funny because I also think about like uh, Underworld, you know, sort of has that vibe going on. There was something else I was thinking about, but I think I forgot it. Anyway. All that to say, he finds this sort of sarcophagus. That he's like, oh, fuck. Ah, oh, fuck! This isn't this isn't good. Uh, well, okay, I'll. And so then he um. He didn't like he, he didn't like bust in on the, uh, uh. On the like pilots area right away the bridge of the ship, um. First he waited for Victor Flexov and and Thran to catch up. Because at some point this ship like started to slow down and they like zoomed to his position because this guy didn't know there was a stowaway aboard his ship, didn't know that he was being followed. And so um, once their ship is nearby, and honestly, I wish I could tell you the name of the ship, but I I got nothing. I, I don't remember. Um, well, the case So once their ship is like close to the ship that Godfrey is on, Godfrey tries to bust in on the uh, bridge of the, of the ship that he stowed away on. And there's like this pilot there and he's like this guy in a gas mask with goggles. Who's in this like hooded, like cloaked outfit. And uh, he sees the, he sees them and he like doesn't, Register as quite like vampire or human, really, uh which is bizarre, um but when he sees Godfried and Godfried sort of comes at him, uh he teleports Godfried back onto the ship where Thran and Victor Flexov are, and he's like, What the fuck? How the fuck did that happen? and they're like what and and they're like that. Nobody, like, that's not a power anybody knows about anybody having. That's some nonsense Q shit, basically. is like, how the heck did he queue me back onto my ship? And so, um, they decide that they're gonna do a special- Oh, right. Then, while, uh, I- I forgot that while- So, so they sidle up to this guy's ship- Godfrey gets teleported back onto the ship, onto their ship, but meanwhile, Victor Flexov is trying to come through one of those, like, airlock extenders, like, bridges, connecting, like, he's got a little uh, airlock umbilical, that's what I'm looking for, connecting to the, the other ship. And so he is trying to get into the ship, and then when Godfrey gets zapped back to their ship then the other ship suddenly starts like burning hard and trying to break away the airlock corridor with Victor Flexov in it. And so Victor Flexov has to fight his way into the ship and save himself in the airlock. And then he's on the ship and he just goes straight to the, to the bridge or the cockpit or what have you, finds this wizard guy Wizard guy like puts uh, like wizard guy looks at him and before he can do anything, Victor Flexov blasts him with a shotgun. Just blasts his legs, takes his kneecaps out, and uh, the guy's like, ah, ah, he's just like screaming. There, he's down. It's uh, it's bad. He's like, all right, all right, I surrender, I surrender, and the uh, Doctor Thran and Godfrey come aboard they interrogate this guy whose name is Odium. (gasps) Now Odium.
1: Man. No way.
0: There's other stuff. There was, right, I forgot to mention there was uh, one of the suspects in the murder investigation was a vampire mob boss on Mars named Sycharini. And uh, they ended up like at one point so so basically, odium says like fine like they're they're like what what are you up to what's what's going on he's like, fine, I'll tell you, I'll let you in on it i've got this I've got this project this this sort of scientific technological project, and basically i am what I need for this project, this experiment, if you will, is I need vampires. It is an experiment that specifically pertains to the vampiric condition. And they're like, okay, well, um, and, and and he's like, I can I can cut you in on it. Like I can get you in on this project, and I can basically give you work and, and I can make sure like you're well paid for it and stuff. And and they're like, okay, fine. We won't kill you. If you let us in on this weird science thing that you've got going on. And like, we want to cut basically. And then, um, they, they go back to the plant. They, they went to back to Mars for a little episode, uh, where they did a bank robbery for Sycarony and that helped them generate funds. Um, and there there was some like little things like that. But then the real thing, and this is where I start my trend of uh, taking things to the extreme in the second act. Because part one of Space Vampirates, very short part, you know, now these parts are very long, um, is Mars. So where'd I send them next, McGill?
1: Uranus. <laughs> now uh venus
0: no but i'll and i'll give you a hint is is the the point of reference here is mpoc i keep in the second act of their campaign sending them to hell
1: oh uh uh are you pulling an event horizon no
0: nope. there's a much more uh tangible hell for vampires in our solar system
1: mercury the sun well yeah wait you're sending them directly into the sun
0: a solar station mcgill oh (laughs) it's where this project is being conducted you see there's a solar station station built around the sun and it's sort of like um Like, like it's all, it's kind of like the station itself is like one of these big technological marvels, but it's also this thing of like, they have this special, like there's these special windows that like filter the light so that like everybody can sit in like super sunlit rooms without fear of like hurting their eyes or whatever. But it's also, it's a kind of uh station with lots of like back maintenance corridors and like little side chambers and, 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 you know, Jeffrey's tubes and whatnot. And in like hidden in the works of this station and sort of like, uh, under the noses of the human residents there, uh, Odium has, uh, been putting together his project, his secret project. And, This project is basically meant to be uh, a means of... It's a kind of, like, technological transcendence or, like, evolution for the vampiric condition. Basically, Odium has this idea of taking uh, vampirism and turning it into, like, a blood-powered... You know, um, you know, in Mass Effect.
1: I know Mass Effect, yes.
0: You know, the Reapers in Mass Effect. Yeah. His idea is basically to like create a vampire, like turn a vampire into a Reaper, basically, is like take all the potential of like the, the power of vampiric blood and everything, and then run it through a machine that can then sort of like moderate it through a system and create this sort of like immortal undead super machine being. That's, that's the experiment that Odium is trying to conduct. And so obviously it's going to take a lot of power and where better to have a lot of power drawn directly into a super machine than at the solar station. If you can, you know get the get your hands on the on the place and the resources and so he asked them to go uh to the solar station and meet up with uh, an uh, an associate of his an operative of his um by the name of serpentine this female vampire who is like a pro mercenary that works for odium and he says like basically follow her lead but she'll let you know what what i need done there and the the first problem is basically there are vampires in the solar station that while previously cooperative have like gone feral basically and so there are these feral vampires in the sort of like monorail system and like uh maintenance works of the solar station that need to be dealt with the security st- situation on the solar station caused by them needs to be contained in order for them to get access to the project like they want. Um, they go there and also uh, Thran befriends uh, a local sort of like um Shipport operator by the name of Caleb, kind of like a meek guy who he just sort of like uh, Thran just sort of like made made friends with him. Was like, hey, so like you must see a lot of stuff going on around here. Like, what have you, what what kind of stuff have you seen like on this station, and like what kind of like what level are you in the in the hierarchy, and what kind of like protocols and whatnot do you know? Basically, having a guy on the inside in the, in the, in the docks for the solar station. Um, there was a cool thing where I did, like, a a tram riding, uh, battle in the, with the feral vampires in the, like, you know, the works of the solar station. But then, the next big thing that I had not predicted at all happened is when the, when, uh, so so it ended up being a few other uh, agents of Odium were on the station that, like, weren't feral. And when they and the Space vampires and uh, Serpentine got access to the, like, Transcendence Project, basically, Serpentine immediately went to, like, sort of activate it and sort of, like, get... She basically, like, got into the big metal throne and went to, like, you know, ascend to, like, uh, cyber lichdom, basically, right? And the players see this, and they, first of all, their reaction was sort of like, wait, is that even part of the plan? Is she supposed to do that? And they're like, man, fuck that. If anybody wants to have the superpowers, it should be us. Fuck this. We'll, we'll take this chair. So they decide they're going to turn on Serpentine in that moment. <laughs> That's another thing I didn't like the number of there's just like, they keep doing these betrayal maneuvers and stuff that I just don't see coming. Um, so then it's a total insane battle Royale where they like, they turn on Serpentine, the other agents turn on them, but then like some of them ended up taking enough, enough damage that they went into frenzy And then one of them, basically, to take out Serpentine, like, shut down the protective filter on the window into that area so that, like, pure sunlight just got burned in and, like, completely vaporized. And also, like, destroyed most of the equipment, um, just, like, melting it. And then... Uh, in that fight, like so, people are frenzying because of the sunlight. Serpentine gets vaporized. Um, people are frenzying because of the because uh, of just like the combat. Um, Godfried got killed. Final death. Uh, it was either a vampire. I think maybe a vampire drank him dry, but then got va- like vaporized by the sun. Total insanity. Victor, Flexov, and Thran book it to the port, and they tell. They get Caleb to basically activate the self destruct for them, and then get onto their ship. And then they take off. And they go, and they see Odium, and Odium's like, You did. What? What? You. <sighs> so. Odium sent them to go, you know, secure this project. And then instead, they vaporize his, like, no, his, his right-hand lady. They destroy his science project. He's like, now there's nothing. What, cl- what do we got to do? And they're like, hey, man, you should have been more clear. Whatever. And he's like, okay, well, I have another trick up my sleeve. It's not... It's not the way I would have wanted to do it. But basically there, there were other people who were working on this same sort of project. And if we can't do the experiment with my stuff, since it's all wrecked now, I guess we could steal their stuff and do the experiment with their stuff. We've got to hijack their, their experiment and make it ours. And they're like, okay deal we'll do that and so the first step then is the third part of space vampires they go to earth which has these very nice uh orbital sort of garden they're little white picket fence communities happy happy little suburban neighborhoods in orbit around earth which is probably fucking terrible down there but they get to be really awkwardly vampires in this like quiet little suburban community and come looking for these vampires that are in hiding in that community who supposedly know something about one of these existing projects to create vampire lichdom transcendence. Um, They make contact with these vampires in hiding, even though they don't want to be found. It's pretty tense. Um, But they learn that there's basically, there's a woman, a a vampire named Mary, and then there's her child, who is sort of like like an engineering prodigy. And he had been sort of like hired out to do the design for this transcendence project that these other vampires were working on for themselves and so by sort of uh contacting the by making contact with these two making an agreement with them and then also extracting them from the orbital thing but also like while the local security is like trying to stop them from leaving. Like they try to lock down their ship and they had to like fight through some checkpoints and like get away with the, I think like it may actually be that they just straight up kidnap Mary and her, her child. But, um, yeah, whatever the case, like it, it, it was rough getting out, but once they get out, um, they are able to learn from the child and Mary that, uh, this the plan the this this other transcendence project that these other vampires are doing, there are three vampires who are trying to mount this project and their secret base is on Pluto. That's where the last part is gonna be. Um and also I forgot to mention that at some point my brother like like for the Earth Act, my brother had a new character that continued on to be like his character for the rest of, of Space Vampirates. Um, again, really unsure what the name is and, and we've sort of grappled with this, both of us. Um, but the <laughs> the main thing I will say is that the thing I know about both of his characters was that they were both not just like vampire clan like they weren't just nosferatu or Van- or gangrel they were like a specific bloodline so they were like sort of niche vampires in that sense i know that the the specific bloodline that he picked um for the second guy was like this weird one where you have like it's kind of like perfume it's like you have supernatural like smell senses
1: oh it's interesting! Like, you mean like the movie perfume
0: yeah yeah it's like a perfume vampire um and so yeah Wait. he had these like really honed or, or oh man but he also had like some sort of like blood addiction thing going on you know basically but but i think it goes back to what i said earlier about like you know, Victor Flexov and Dr. Thran are very, like, sci-fi vampire characters, whereas his vampire characters were sort of more traditional in that they were, like, you know, very specific, uh, had, like, very specific powers and also, like, very specific weaknesses and whatnot. Um, anyway, so they decide that they are going to go—the the final plan is go to Pluto— find the secret base and these three vampires that are trying to achieve ascendance, take them out and take the ascendance for ourselves. And, uh, long story short, that's basically what they did was basically three, like high level boss fights with these three vampires. Although again, in this final uh, chapter, my brother's character got killed. So, my brother, neither of his vampires ended up ascending, <laughs> and that's part of the reason we can't like remember their names probably, is because although, you know, it's hard to forget Victor Flexov and Doctor Thoran, but they, you know, got to move on in the scheme of things. Um and so basically, then Victor Flexov and Dr. Thran become these super cyber lich beings. Then I ran a much less successful um much less successful sequel campaign called S- Space Vampirai, which is supposed to be about space vampire samurai that were basically sent forth by their lich masters to conquer a planet to seize transcendence for themselves on that planet, that was sort of in a like crazy civil war over who was gonna get to become this like vampire god out of the crazy technology that had been built on this planet um and so the characters for that one were Caleb, who went on to become Doctor Thran's vampire child um Mary, <laughs> who was played by the guy who played Victor. And then uh, the last one was my brother's character, who was Yokumo Raki, who was just straight-up space vampire samurai who had a big beef with that mob boss I mentioned, Saikarani, back on Mars. And, uh, you know, they, they finished the campaign. They they end, they got to lichdom, but, like, I don't know. the The campaign just, like, was kind of more of a slog than I anticipated. It wasn't, like, the... Like, Space Vamp- vampires just, like, went so perfectly for me, I feel like. Or, like, at the time, at least, it felt so great. And, like, I look back on it as such an achievement. And then Space vampire just kind of, like, fell flat, I felt like. It was too much, like, just, like, fighting a thing and fighting a thing and fighting a thing. Which I kind of had, like... Things kind of just ended up that way because I set it up where, like, they went to this planet in Civil War... And they decide that they just couldn't trust anybody, so they just ended up like killing everybody. Um, it's kind of like you know one of those like Fallout New Vegas playthroughs where you don't choose a faction, you know, <laughs> you just go around murdering everybody.
1: Anyway. Aka how I play Fallout New Vegas.
0: Oh, okay. Well, anyways, the thing is, the the storyline that continues out from here is that. Eventually, the world of Space vamp- vampires, because of Odium's initial experiment, it succeeds so well that the liches, these cyber reap- reaper liches, they become like the dominant force in the universe. Do you know what I'm getting at here, McGill? Uh... There's a huge reveal that I'm laying on you right now about... All the m game and everything and Odium.
1: They've literally all been vampires this whole time? No. Remember, Odium wasn't a vampire. Right. Uh, Well, this is all taking... Is this all taking place on planet Earth?
0: (laughs) I mean, Earth was there. Yeah. Like... These liches taking control of the universe, these, these undead super cyber beings, what does that remind you of?
1: I'm going to be honest, Tom. I'm having a hard time thinking of it because this whole time I've been racking my brain trying to think of movies about space vampires. And so my brain is totally fixated on that. But cyber liches running the universe... I mean, I can tell you what it makes me think of, but I know it's not the thing you're thinking of at all. It makes me think of the movie Mad God that I watched uh, in January. Oh, gotta
0: God, I watched that one. Um, okay, I'll, I'll tell you what it makes me think of. A world that, a, a universe that became completely dominated by technologically advanced undead. That sounds like the nightside eclipse. Oh mcgill odium created the night, side, the night eclipse.
1: side eclipse and so and he's the founder of mpoc right yeah so he founded the mpoc to correct his own mistake you
0: nailed it in one i'm so glad you literally put it in like the exact words because some like like i remember when this reveal happened because you know not everybody from empire so Um, I should say that the players who played Victor Flexov and Dr. Thran were the other two players who played um, Alistair and Magnus in Empok's Finest, and those are the two players that didn't go on into Alsace's. But, like, so since they weren't around for this reveal, but they would appreciate it, I told them uh, out of character. And, like, the guy who played Victor Flexov was like, oh, that asshole. And I'm like, well, not really. Because it's not like he's been working for the Nightside Eclipse the whole time. It's not like he's secretly the bad guy. It's just, it is his experiment that ran out of control that he has been trying to correct all this time. And it's funny because about the time that I did this reveal, season one of Westworld had just aired, and there were strong, I, I, I even got to use the music uh, the Dr. Ford theme. And he has ah. the whole speech about like, any man whose mistakes take 10 years to correct must be quite a man or whatever. And all that. It's like, man, Odium is just trying to do the, the right thing by starting the MPOC to contain the monster that he created.
1: cool i like that man i really like the the space vampires the entire space vampires storyline that stuff's really neat
0: man and and what what was only you know the thing is the people from space vampires they had always known that like they always recognized the name Odium. it's a very distinct name Uh, It means, like, a general sense of, like, hatred or, uh, like, disgust. Yeah, Um, like
1: something is odious, right?
0: Yeah, uh, there's some fiction series uh, where there's a big evil god named Odium. Um, I mainly know it as the alternate title to a Polish role-playing game, tactical role-playing game called Gorky 17, that the alternate title was Odium, and I played a demo of it on a PC gamer disc. And for some reason, that just like I don't know, the image of like a monster eye and the word Odium just stuck with me. Anyway. Um, and then like, man, then like as I was running this game, I was listening to metal albums, and I found that a bunch of the metal albums I was listening to were on a YouTube channel that was called like Odium Nostrum or something. And I'm like, what the heck? Metal's just pulling it all together, man. But, you know, all this, all this reveal, and McGill, it still doesn't explain where Odium's been. So, Odium has been trying to correct the mistake of the nightside eclipse, he's trying to contain it but it is literally an entire dimension where the undead reign where it's gotten so bad that there's only undead that they are at a point where they will self cannibalize as a species if they do not expand into other realities. And that is what Odium is trying to stop. And that's what the MPOC that's their mandate. That's their primary mandate is go to realms that would be under threat from the Nightside Eclipse. It's like, I've always made the comparison that the MPOC is kind of like the CIA or something, it's like we're really combating the spread of communism, you know? So, uh,
1: I I hope, I mean this is a very favorable comparison, but uh, your opinions on what I'm referencing (laughs) uh, might might be different. But uh, the way you're doing this, this... uh, sort of branching realities or, or creating, uh, you know, a, a multi-reality RPG universe involving Odium in the MPOC, uh, it kind of reminds me of like uh, Dark Tower or the way Stephen King sort of ties all his stories together in a way. Whether or not you, you think he does it well is sort of neither here nor there, but obviously he's been quite successful in doing it.
0: I can sort see elements of that with like, uh, particularly with the weird stuff at the end of it. Um, but cause, I, cause I'm not actually that familiar with the dark tower, I'll be honest, but, um, yeah, but, and, and, you know, the thing is it's always been an inherent part of the setting. Like the whole idea, like the night side eclipse has always been this interplanar threat. And it's uh, the, the, the MPOC I've always pitched it as, a transplanar spy agency. And so the idea of like, and, and you know, we've had in the flashbacks, they went to pandemonium, they've been to hell on, on their missions and everything. They've, you know, um, it's always been a very interplanar affair. and And really that takes us right on to the next thing, is that Odium was looking for some Weapon that would give them the edge against the nightside eclipse because the nightside eclipse just seems overwhelming. And one thing we've actually covered in this whole campaign is that Al Samasath was so reluctant but eventually decided to launch this war on the Deathlands, um, even though that is against MPOC policy because there's this tendency for war to just create more nightside, like more undead, more nightside eclipse. And so you know, Odium had basically reached the point where he's like, we can't just solve this problem the typical head-on way. Even though it's it's worked relatively well for Al-Samasath in the Deathlands. But it doesn't solve, like, it th- that may work in the Deathlands, but it doesn't solve the problem that there's an entire universe of undead, you know, waiting behind that, you know? They could just come back to drill and repopulate it, theoretically. So odin has been grappling for ages with the issue of how to stop the nightside eclipse. And in his studies, he found a plane of basically like, there's a whole idea in Dungeons and Dragons of like the negative energy plane and the positive energy plane. And undeath is sort of associated with negative energy and positive energy tends to be like harmful to un- to the undead and whatnot. And so what what Odium effectively discovers in his like interplanar travels and research is he finds like a dimension of like pure light that is like no undead could possibly live there. And he's like, hell yeah, let's go in and like find some. Let's like get some sort of resource from there or something or, or maybe like make a deal with the whatever entities are in power in that world. And like that could be the turning point against the night side eclipse. And so he's like, all right, I'm, I'm going in, going to the light world. I'm going to try and see what I can, what I can work out. If I can make a deal goes to the light world it's not what he expected man there's something he didn't foresee in the light world and that something is called the ministry by the way i haven't been doing all my metal shoutouts, man i didn't even say uh man uh i i know that the first part of space vampirates was called murder at the crossroads of the eightfold path um And I know that the Pluto part was called Souls at Point Below Zero, which is a mix of Souls at Zero by Neurosis and the line from Dimu Borgir about life's value being point below zero. And it's also a play on, you know, Sub-Zero. Then the Earth one was something about white picket fences. Uh, I think it was just called White Fence, actually, because White Fence was the name of the suburb. Uh, And the Sun one, I can't remember the name of. Anyways, uh, and then um, the thing I just said, Ministry. Man, Ministry is like the, the industrial metal band. The industrial band, man. It's one of the ones, man. They always gotta, I love Ministry, and Ministry is a big part of my, like, metal, you know, uh uh I don't know uh, uh development like i like discovery like yeah, it was like a big like it wouldn't be complete without ministry, Ministry ar- occupies this like very distinct place in my mind and w- in my history with music and everything so in my game, the ministry, there's kind of inspired. By uh, Zach Smith, who did D and D with porn stars, the blog who I've mentioned a few times, he used to just post these ideas on his blog, and one of them was like um, this weird sort of like sort of it was like these twin homunculi things that are like secretly it's like people believe that there's an order of assassins, but it's actually these like little twin homunculi thing that control people in order to like kill their victims the ministry so so that the ministry is inspired by that in the sense that the ministry is like a race of like microscopic sort of psychic like parasitical psychic organisms i guess you could say um you know, it's funny. I, I only just recently sort of like put this together or, or made this rec- realization, but it's like, it's probably the point that I should go on because it's definitely what I've been thinking of whenever I try to visualize the ministry, even though the ministry are supposed to be like, you know, microscopic. When I do want to visualize them, I have visualized microscopic versions of, uh, you know, and from beyond, the little, like, um, sort of like the little mouths with just like little tentacles that fly around the air, the little pink things. One of them bites. Yeah, bites they're, the
1: they're kind of like uh, like lampreys.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking, but like they don't. Anyway, um, like I, I kind of imagine the mystery being like that, but imagine just like so tiny and it like hitches onto your like psychic structure. And there's no way of, like, detecting for it. It's not magic. It's not, it, it is literally, like, a microorganism. You would have to, like, you can't just, like, scan for it with magic or whatever because it's, it's, like, you would have to scan for, like, you would have to have some sort of, like, microbial science magic because it's not even just, like, a disease or something. This creature just, like, kind of like mounts you in like a weird psychic way and not in the sense of like a ghost possessing you or something. It gets into your mind and you don't know it's there. But once it is in your mind, you are part of the ministry. You are a minister, whether you realize it or not, and it will influence your actions to carry out the agenda of the ministry. The agenda of the ministry is basically to um, correct disruptions in reality Now it's kind of like the uh,
1: it's kind of like the time office, right
0: yeah, uh, I've, I've heard of a few like comparisons like that, but but yeah, they're like but with the key thing that like the time office Like, doesn't send agents... Like, they literally just assign you to the task. You suddenly begin working for the time office and you have no idea. um, Because there's a little bug in your head that's making you make choices in accordance with what they want. Uh, It'd be very effective if the time office did it. I'm just gonna say. Take a page from the ministry. Um, This is a problem because perhaps no one is responsible for more disruptions in the natural reor- the natural order of reality than can you name them
1: uh the uh, Alsaces.
0: <laughs> more specifically odium odium the guy who turned a whole yeah. dimension into undead And now that dimension is spreading out into other dimensions. That's like, like number one, the sort of thing that the ministry is guarding against. And this guy rolls up into their home plane, basically as like, Hey, can I get some help? And they're like, with what? And he's like, well, I did this. And they're like, you did what? And he's like, Oh fuck. And he just like retreats from that dimension. But then he knows that the ministry Like identifying how they work and what they are, he realizes he's he could have he could be a minister now, even if he's not, he could have like ministry parasites on him. And he, if he goes back to Drail or the MPOC base or anything, he might be bringing back a minister that then infiltrates the MPOC. And the ministry is like basically inherently anti-odium and basically anti Um And there's, there's more to that. Is basically uh, he, here's the thing, is, why is odium so sick all the time? What, why is odium all decrepit, you know? Um, is
1: it because there's some kind of decay that occurs when you jump between realities?
0: Not quite that. Um, another uh, really cool theory. I just want to shout out the player who played Chessie. What he thought it was going to turn out was that Odium secretly was a member of the Nightside Eclipse, but he had like turned on them, and he was constantly deteriorating because he was an undead who was not like he was he was not connected to the Nightside Eclipse system to feed him anymore which I thought like that, that that's cool because it's an alternate twist that I think was total, would have been totally plausible as well. Um, so I want to give that a shout out, but the thing is, um, so we've covered actually some allies of the MPOC in like an extra planar sense. Uh, the MPOC has had dealings with Mephisto, um, it has this great old one patron, uh, Zoth, the Anarchy, who I mentioned earlier. Um, and also, so basically, you know, uh, in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, do you know the Warlock class? Like, do you have much of a sense of it?
1: Uh, to a degree, because one of the players in my current campaign is playing as a Warlock.
0: So, you've got the three... Like, in the base game, you've got the three potential uh, patrons. You could go with a Fae Pact, an Infernal Pact, or a Great Old One Pact. And you you pick one, right? And that's the type of warlock you are. Basically, in his desperation to fight the Nightside Eclipse, create the MPOC, and get whatever advantage he could... Odium is effectively a warlock of all three types. He is a great old one warlock assigned to Zothranian anarchy. He is an infernal warlock in his allegiance to Mephisto. And he is a fey warlock in his constant uh, reliance on the goblin markets, which Dax is from. And it's like this interplanar fey force that basically you know i we talked about it before the goblin market gets you whatever you need for a price and that's basically where things started with with odium on this trajectory is like i need a miracle to stop the night side eclipse and he's like he finds out about the goblin market and it's like okay well i can work with this I've, as long as i pay the right price i'll get what i need and then that didn't quite cover it and so he was like, all right, I'll use my goblin market resources to try and get in contact with, like, a great old one. Because if Citra Arha is outside of reality, then, like, the, the, then the great, like, a great old one must, there must be one that, like, they're stepping on his toes, and I can use that to my advantage. And then that still doesn't do it. So then he's like, all right, I'll make a pact with an arch devil. And then I'll have all three warlock forces on my side. But the thing is, one soul is not meant to split itself in three directions. You're not supposed to play. It, it's like Odium is basically like that thing that Bilbo says about uh, too much, uh, too, not enough butter over too much bread or uh, not enough toothpaste over too much
1: tooth
0: toothbrush. <laughs> or brush <laughs> odium is like and, and it's funny because I I almost wanted to play on something which is like in world of darkness there's this there's this like recurring joke of like the character that is you know, you know world of darkness generally splits into vampire werewolf mage and then there's this joke of like but what if there was a vampire werewolf mage and there is like a character that is basically that and it's kind of like a recurring joke is like he's just the most ridiculous character that's ever been created um and and the whole joke of that is like you know it's it's un it's unfettered power gaming but what i what i wanted to really hone in on was this idea that odium had tried he had tried to basically be everything and as a result he is spread so thin that he is like barely he's barely holding together as a mortal being because his soul is effectively continuously being pulled in three different directions um and so that is also that also makes him like enemy number 1 of the ministry particularly because um, the goblin market is also like kind of an inherent enemy of the ministry because of the way it constantly bends reality uh, based on its transactions. So Odium went looking for something to turn the tide against the night side eclipse and instead found something that, like a force that would effectively be like you've been playing loose, you've been playing it fast and loose too long. Now we're going to come and we're going to use whatever and whoever we can to correct your nonsense. And, uh, that's where he's, so he's been here ever since, and, but that's the recognition, is the realization that eventually... Someone was going to come looking for him. Someone was going to find him. And now the question is, does somebody in the party have a ministry? Ministry parasite? Oh, Is one of them a minister? Over the time that he's explained all of this, they could have been implanted. It could have happened the minute they got here. Or maybe none of them are ministers, but as soon as they go back to Drail there's ministers in drail now the ministry unless they stay here unless this party stays here on this asteroid with odium forever which even odium knows can't keep going like this he now now they fill him in on what's going on in drail and he's like all right well we got to figure something out but when you guys go back you are bringing like after that the floodgates are open we don't know who's a minister and who isn't
1: that's cool i like this uh who can you trust thing that you're you're adding in at this point
0: so that basically we find out where odium we find out what's the deal with odium but with it we are revealed a whole new threat that is like significantly less tangible than the night side eclipse, and uh, I feel like I've gone pretty long now, so I think I'm actually there. There's like a, a bit more that I could cover, but I think I will save it um, for next time, uh, so I can just talk about we can just sort of talk about this stuff in general. What what Odium's plans are for the future because he announces that. Um, but also some what happens when they get back to Drail.
1: This is really cool stuff. And I really love space vampires too. That's, that's awesome. I, I, I am a big fan of space horror and that's kind of a, a remix of horror elements in space that I've never seen before. The idea of like a vampire spaceship crew.
0: I, I will say this. um, We've talked a lot this episode about my achievements as a, Game Master or Dungeon Master. I feel, and I'm glad that you, like, appreciate that this is cool stuff because I don't think, I, I think more than anything, my crowning achievement to date as a Dungeon Master is having that reveal all the way from MPOC's Finest to, like, almost the end of Al's Aces and never spoiling it and it was nice it it like oh i can't tell you the sense of fulfillment like i'm just i'm feeling the glow just now is like man and pulled it off it like it landed man it was perfect and like just even like the fact that we've been doing this podcast and i we're episode 99 and i've told you all these mpoc stories and when it came to the final reveal you were like Odium's been cleaning up his mess. It's like, yes. That is the whole thing. It's like, what? <laughs> what?
1: Everything fit into place. It was all foreshadowed but never never spoiled. It all came together.
0: And this was that episode I kept foreshadowing where I said I talked yeah. about a game that wasn't Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, um, I figured
1: that the that this was it. Man, and talk about what a episode 99 what a perfect time to bust all this out
0: yeah man it's uh crazy stuff but you know um there's still stuff to be done once they get back to drail and uh odium has plans for the future that i think will get into these two things next episode um are we okay to just uh drop off here or uh there's one last thing uh,
1: related to all of that because i was saying you know i was racking my brain while you were talking about space vampires trying to think of like vampires in space in a movie and uh there's nothing like space vampires that i've been able to find if anybody out there knows of a movie where it's like the crew of a ship but they're also vampires please let me know because I, i really like that setup But there is one space vampire movie. I had a
0: comic book called Seas of Blood that was about vampires, but it wasn't space vampires. And
1: and there is a a book series called Vampires, but again, not in space. Um, But uh, there's one movie I thought of. I'm going to send you the poster here. This is the alternate poster art. Holy shit. I mean but it is known to most people as life force uh, Toby
0: Hooper that's uh Texas
1: Chainsaw, Chainsaw t- I was about to say Texas Chainsaw yeah uh he's it to- directed by Toby Hooper it's it's usually called life force and it is about vampires from space coming to earth and uh features Patrick Stewart
0: wow well uh i mean have you seen it
1: i have seen it and like is it not this, bad. The
0: vampires just come to Earth or is there real like space vampire shit?
1: There's some space vampire shit like they find a vampire in stasis on a spaceship.
0: OK, that's cool. That's yeah. like a sarcophagus in a ship.
1: Yeah. Along those lines. Oh,
0: shoot. I never explained. Uh, Serpentine was the one who was in that sarcophagus. How's the other reveal?
1: It all comes together
0: yeah anyway if you want to get in touch with us uh see when we post new episodes or follow us check us out on facebook comparing campaign on facebook and uh, if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials possibly uh well like definitely note pages i got a little uh map of the dialogue for odium and his little his little room there uh got little doodles of odium um but also uh, a uh, poster for Space Vampires has got uh, sort of naked ladies on it. Uh, that's all at uh, comparingcampaign.wordpress.com uh, Who got... Who didn't land the reveal this episode? Not me!
1: Man, that double negative.
0: <laughs>
1: Level up it your characters, folks. Watch over oh, Space man, Vampires.
0: If you steal someone else's vampire transcendent project in space, it's definitely haunted. (laughs) Take care, everybody.